Foreign Relations Committee is called to order, and I want to thank our witness for testifying today. Ambassador Shannon, we congratulate you on your confirmation. We appreciate your uh, continued service to our country, and we look forward to working with you in this capacity. Today, we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the implementation of the JCPOA in relations with Iran. I think all of us have been and remain skeptical of Iran. Many of us were and remain skeptical of the nuclear deal. Uh, there's also bipartisan frustration with the perception that previous commitments made by the administration are not squaring with reality. Secretary Kerry told us that the ballistic missile test ban would stay in place despite language suggesting otherwise. He testified before this committee that the exact same language in, pre in the previous embargo is in the agreement with respect to launches. Um, we challenged him. I think you probably tuned into those when the called upon language was put in place saying we felt that that weakened the agreement, uh, they pushed back strongly as it turns out uh, we were right and that's very concerning and now uh, if I could, the, our European friends wrote a letter saying it was inconsistent instead of saying it was in violation in many ways uh, supporting Iran's position so that was very disappointing. Ambassador Mull confirmed that launches would be a violation of the UN, new UN Security Council resolution when he testified in December, saying that called upon language would violate UN UNSCR 2022-31. Obviously, um, the UN Security Council doesn't view it that way. Very different than what we've been told. There's lots of speculation that Iran will soon get some type of access to transactions involving the U.S. dollar. We'd like to get your assurance that the dollar is not in the cards for Iran. I did have a very good call yesterday with Adam Zubrin. He assured me that that was not the case. And then this morning, Secretary Kerry is on a television program acting as if that is going to be the case, that we are going to find some accommodation. So I felt very reassured yesterday in talking to Adam that we were not U-turning U.S. dollars. We were not going to be involved in helping them, if you will, outside the, the agreement. And yet this morning it seemed that Secretary Kerry indicated that we were. So I'd love to have your, your response to that. There are also questions uh, about whether or not the administration would consider new legitimate sanctions authority on the violation of JCPOA. I think you know there's bipartisan support for new sanctions authority in response to Iran's repeated ballistic missile launches. Previous assurances, including some by the President, clearly stated that we deserve the right to take new steps should we need to push back harder against Iran's non-nuclear behavior. I think the repeated ballistic missile launches and, and desire to purchase all types of weapons from Russia prove that an increased pushback is necessary. I hope you can help us answer some of these outstanding questions in a constructive manner so that we may know what the administration is thinking regarding these important matters. With that, again, I want to thank you for your service. I'm glad you were confirmed in the time frame that you were. We appreciate you being here. And with that, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for uh, convening this hearing. This is our first hearing on the JCPOA uh, since its implementation date on January the, the 16th as we look at how we are going to uh, look at the post-JCPOA era. Ambassador Shannon, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for your continued commitment to our country. Uh, you hold a critically important position as we look at the uh, enforcement of the JCPOA and other activities that Iran is, is participating in. 
The, um, it's, it's clear to me uh, that we need to work together uh, in regards to making sure Iran uh, fully complies with the JCPOA, that we need to look at Iran's other nefarious activities. Uh, the chairman mentioned the ballistic missile tests on March the 8th and 9th. Uh, Iran uh, did ballistic missiles tests that were clearly in violation of the missile bans and clearly uh, in, out of compliance with the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2231, whether it was a formal violation that, that requires action is something that is being debated internationally, but it was clear that uh, those types of missile violations um, were su supposed to end and that uh, we are should be prepared to take strong action and the administration has taken action. Uh, throughout the Middle East, Iran is the instigator of instability and conflict. Uh, fostering uh, violence through its financial support of terrorist groups and violent militias uh, committed to the path of sectarian violence. We need to be able to take action in regards uh, to those types of activities. Uh, as the chairman knows, this past uh, uh, period of, uh, where the Senate was not in session, I led a CODEL to Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Uh, Senator Markey and Senator Gardner of this committee joined me along with Senator Merkley. In Israel, I spoke at length with the Israelis' leaders on the ways to further enhance our security cooperation. I witnessed this cooperation firsthand, paying a visit to the Iron Dome, the anti-rocket battery, a joint Israel-U.S. project that saves lives. Very impressed by the uh, commitment of the Israelis working with the United States in regards to their missile defense systems. The U.S. and Israel are working together to complete other systems, including our RO3 and David Sling, all very important. I sort of expected to hear that from the Israelis, but when I was in Qatar and Saudi Arabia, I heard similar type of, uh, of concerns. It was uh, encouraging to see the, uni the, the I guess, the uh, consistency of concerns expressed by the Israelis and by the Saudis and by the uh, the Qatarites, they all are very concerned about Iran's influence in that region. They are concerned about what Iran is doing in Syria. We just saw in today's articles that uh, Iran has sent advisors into Syria uh, to support the Assad regime. Uh, the ceasefire does not appear to be holding, and uh, Iran's activities are clearly destabilizing in that area. In Yemen, we have a delegate ceasefire that we hope will yield results, but we know Iran is still actively engaged in Yemen. So there is concern uh, about what Iran is doing. In Saudi Arabia, I learned how continued U.S. defense cooperation has significantly uh, bolstered the capacity of the Saudi partners, including how U.S.-supplied Patriot missiles have sh shot down Scud missiles uh, fired by the Iranian-supported uh, Houthi uh, movement. In, Yemen. In Qatar, I visited the U.S. troops stationed at the Combined Air Operations Center. Incredible operation there, and uh, really dedicated men and women uh, to the campaign against, uh, uh, the, uh, against ISIL, and saw firsthand the impact we are having in that region. So, so Mr. Ambassador, it was encouraging to see the, the, the unity, but I must tell you, I am concerned about 
the challenges that we have in the Middle East and Iran's role in making those challenges more, more difficult. I think we have to talk how we can most effectively deal with those challenges. And to me, it's not in undermining the JCPOA. I oppose the JCPOA, but what I want to see it now, it carried out. I want to see aggressive oversight by the administration and Congress to make sure that there is strict compliance by Iran in regards to its nuclear obligations. And then we need to work in unity on Iran's other nefarious activities that are continuing, including the support of terrorism and human rights violations and its ballistic missile tests, and how we as the Congress working with the administration can give you a stronger hand uh, to prevent these types of activities from continuing. So I look forward to this exchange as to how we can work together in order to accomplish our mutual objective to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state, but also to, to rein in Iran's uh, activities in regards to ballistic missile violations, human rights violations, and the support of terrorism. Thank you. Our witness today is the Honorable Tom Shannon, Under Secretary for Political Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Um, I know you've been in divorce uh, in the past. If you will, if you could summarize your comments in about five minutes. I think most of us probably have read your written testimony, but it'll be entered into the record without objection uh, in its fullness. Uh, but if you summarize, we'll then question. We thank you again for being here. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Cardin and distinguished members of the committee. It's a real pleasure to be here and a great pleasure to be here um, following my confirmation. And I thank you and all the members of the committee for uh, your support. Um, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about our U.S. policy towards Iran and especially recent Iranian actions. And I will summarize, as you noted, the remarks that I have submitted um, officially. And I want to focus uh, on three key policy objectives uh, regarding Iran. Uh, the first is our intent to ensure that Iran uh, adheres to the JCPOA uh, and that Iran does not develop a nuclear weapon. Uh, the second is to counter Iran's support for terrorism and to counter its ballistic missile program while also working diplomatically to encourage Iran to play a more constructive role in the region. And finally, uh, to promote respect for human rights in Iran. Um, Iran has taken significant uh, irreversible steps that have fundamentally changed the trajectory of its nuclear program. Before the JCPOA took effect, Iran was less than 90 days away from getting enough fissile material for, nuclear, for a nuclear weapon, should it have chosen to pursue that path. Today, Iran is over a year away from being able to get that material. Any attempt to do so would be quickly detected by the international community. In exchange for Iran completing its key JCPO, JCPOA commitments, the United States and the European Union lifted nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. The United States retains our ability and authorities to snap back sanctions into place should Iran walk away from the JCPOA. But as long as Iran continues to meet its commitments, the United States will continue to meet our commitments. While we are encouraged by Iran's adherence to its nuclear commitments thus far, I want to emphasize that the JCPOA did not resolve our profound differences with Iran. We remain focused and determined to continue to address those differences and to take all necessary actions to protect ourselves and our allies. Iran's support for terrorist groups like Hezbollah, its assistance to the Assad regime in Syria, and to Houthi rebels in Yemen are at odds with core U.S. interests and pose fundamental threats to the region and beyond. 
That's why we have retained our sanctions related to Iran's destabilizing activities in the region, including its support for terrorism. We also believe the most effective way to push back on aggressive Iranian activity is to work cooperative, cooperatively with our allies to deter and disrupt Iranian threats. This is why we increased our security cooperation with the Gulf Cooperation Council following the Camp David summit and have provided additional assistance to Israel. Furthermore, we continue to co coordinate with our coalition partners to interdict illicit Iranian weapon shipments throughout the region. We also share your deep concern about Iran's attempts to develop increasingly capable ballistic missile systems, which are a threat to regional and international security. While full implementation of the JCPOA will ensure that Iran is unable to develop a nuclear warhead to place on a missile, we will continue to use all available multilateral and unilateral tools to impede the development of Iran's ballistic missile program. Our human rights policy has not changed as a result of the JCPOA. Iran violates fundamental human rights of its citizens by severely restricting civil liberties, including the freedoms of peaceful assembly, expression, and religion. Human rights-related sanctions are not subject to relief under the JCPOA, and we continue to vigorously enforce these sanctions. While our concerns about Iran are substantial, we believe it is in the U.S. national interest to continue a dialogue with Iran to address issues directly where we can, make sure that Iran is hearing both publicly and privately what we stand for and what we won't stand for. We will continue to hold Iran to its commitment to bilateral discussions about the whereabouts of Robert Levinson, and we will continue to raise the unjust attention of U.S. citizens Siamak Namazi and his father Bakur Namazi. The Congress plays an essential role in shaping our policy and posture toward Iran. The legislative and executive branches should continue to work together, as we did to build international pressure on Iran to calibrate our approach to countering Iranian threats while remaining willing to engage when we judge it in our interest to do so. I look forward to continued consultations with the Congress as we strive to find the right balance between keeping this hand of friendship and lines of communication open and standing strong and resolute in the face of real and dangerous threats from Iran to the United States and our partners. Again, I thank you for this opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And again, thank you for your service. Tell us what's going on with the dollar transactions. Uh, there have been rumors that have come out of the administration. I've actually talked to administration officials who don't know where those rumors are coming from and are somewhat disconcerted by it. I talked to, again, Adam Zubin last night, who was very reassuring that we are doing nothing to accommodate dollar transactions. The president seemed to state that on Friday, uh, and yet Secretary Kerry was on the, uh, on the television this morning acting as if um, we were doing something. What is going on relative to us accommodating their ability to use dollars in their transactions? Uh, thank you very much for the question. Uh, it's an important one, and as you noted, it's uh, gathered a, a fair bit of, of media buzz. Um, and uh, this is ultimately a Treasury concern um, in, because they're the ones that do general licensing, and Adam Zubin is a great person to talk to on this. But let me tell you what I know at this point, uh, which is that the, the rumors and, and news that has appeared in the press that the U.S. is preparing to reinstate a U-turn authorization or to allow Iran access to the United, U.S. financial system are not true. Um, well, why would Secretary Kerry have said the things he said this morning 
saying that we need to accommodate their ability to have the economic growth that they uh, thought they would have under the sanctions relief. What the secretary was, the point the secretary was making is that um, as Iran uh, attempts to access money that is being made available to it through the lifting of sanctions, uh, that there will be instances in which we have had to help Iran access that money by clarifying the regulations under which money can be transferred to them. Uh, we have found that as Iran seeks those funds, that are some, there are banks that are unclear about the nature of the regulatory structures and what sanctions have been lifted and what have not. And the Secretary believes that it is in our national interest to ensure that the commitments we made uh, are being followed through on. Okay. This is part of a, a larger engagement that we've had with the Iranians on different aspects of our commitments, both the commitments they've made and the commitments we have made. So the dollarizing issue is bogus? As, as, okay. as of this moment, so, as far as I know, yes. So the person charged with heading OFAC, I know he's acting, I hope he'll be permanently uh, put in that place. He's, I think in my opinion, he's very good. He told me there was some concern that there was a little bit of a wink and nod going on where basically we were saying to institutions, look, um, just know that in spite of what the agreement says, we're not coming after you for this. You know of no instance or no one urging, including Secretary Kerry, Treasury Department to turn their head relative to the black and white uh, agreement that is before us relative to this issue. You know of no incidents of that. I do not, but again, the, the, the point that the Secretary was making is that we have commitments under uh, the JCPOA, and uh, we need to live up to those commitments and ensure that the Iranians are receiving for what they have done what they believe uh, we have committed to. And what the Secretary has been clear about, and what Secretary Liu has also been clear about, is the importance of ensuring that Iran has assets, has, has access to the assets that are now open to them. Well, I just, I don't think the administration's on the same page. And I think there are some people that uh, are invested in this and have developed relationships and I think are trying to bend this in a, in a way that will benefit Iran. I hope Secretary Kerry and the President and Adam Zubin will end up getting on the same page. I guess if we uh, acted to codify the fact here uh, legislatively that those things could not occur, um, that would be consistent with what the administration and you are saying today, and that would not be a problem. Would that be correct? Well, by codifying, if you mean not authorizing U-turns or not authorizing access to the U.S. financial system, that's already present, I believe, in our... In our, our so we could codify and it wouldn't be a problem and Iran would not consider it a violation. That's good. Um, we'll, we'll attempt to do that. Um, on the ballistic missiles, uh, you know, I, I pointed out testimony from Secretary Kerry, Ambassador Maul. Um, we knew when the language said called upon, this incident would likely, this situation would likely occur. It has. It's uh, disappointing. Um, I was disappointed that the letter from our European partner said it was inconsistent and didn't say it was a violation. Obviously, there was some wordsmithing taking place. Would you have any problem with us uh, codifying, uh, putting in place some, uh, some uh, sanctions against them for clearly, in our opinion, violating the agreement as the administration explained to us the agreement uh, said? Thank you for the question, a, a very important one. And as I noted, we remain resolutely and absolutely opposed to uh, Iran's ballistic missile program. Uh, and we believe that uh, we have both multilaterally and unilaterally 
the tools necessary to attack that missile program and do whatever we can to interdict the technologies that Iran is seeking to advance its ballistic missile program. We believe that we have the necessary authorities now, uh, and we will continue to designate individuals and entities that we believe are supporting that ballistic missile program, as we have done in response to uh, Iran's several ballistic missile launches. Uh, in regard to potential legislation, uh, our only concern about these, this legislation is that it not interfere with JCPOA, JCPOA implementation or give Iran any excuse to walk away from the table. But at this point, we believe that we can address the, the punitive side of um, Iran's ballistic missile program with the authorities we have, but also we are, as I noted in my, in my opening remarks, we're very intent on helping our partners in the region defend themselves yeah. from uh, Iran's ballistic missile program, and that's where we are going to begin focusing a lot of our effort to ensure yeah. not only that we delay and deter Iran's ballistic missile program, but we do what we can to support others to defend themselves. Well, look, I think the majority of people up here, uh, whether they supported the agreement or didn't support the agreement, were very concerned about the called upon language, and we sought assurances um, because we knew called upon was very different than what had been in the agreement, uh, in agreements in the past, and unfortunately, we are where we are. My sense is that most people here want to take some action against that, whether they supported it or not. Um, let me just ask one last question. And, and by the way, I'm disappointed that what the administration said didn't come to fruition. And um, I'm disappointed for our country. I'm disappointed for all of those who uh, you know, are, are counting on this agreement to deter that type of action. Russia uh, plans to sell them uh, SU-30s. Um, you know, uh, do you consider this a violation of the agreement? I know that it's not a violation until they actually do it. I know they've entered into discussions, and it may not come to fruition. I think it likely will. But if it does, would you consider that to be a violation of the agreement we have with them? Are you talking about the S-300 missile defense no. system or the, the SU-30s? SU yeah, the, um, the, the sale of uh, SU-30 uh, fighter aircraft uh, uh, is prohibited under UNSCR 2231 without the approval of the UN Security Council. Uh, and, and we would block the approval of any sale of uh, fighter aircraft un under the restrictions. So if we, if we decided to take action here just to ensure, because the assurances we've had haven't worked particularly well, and we're getting mixed signals right now about these dollar transactions, if we were to take action here to make sure that that could not happen without additional sanctions, you would not have a problem with it. Sir, far be it from me to tell the United States Senate how to legislate, um, but I, I would just say that that the sale of this kind of aircraft is prohibited uh, without the approval of the UN Security Council, and we would not approve it. Thank you so much. Uh, with that, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you again, Ambassador Shannon. Appreciate uh, your explanations here. I, I'm, I'm going to follow up on some of the questions of Chairman Corker as to how the United States Senate and the United States Congress can help to achieve our objectives. I think the oversight of, this, of the Congress will be helpful in making sure Iran does not become a nuclear weapon state. But as we uh, discussed during the debate on the JCPOA, Congress and the administration has full abilities to deal with those issues not covered under the JCPOA. So when Chairman Corker asked you about certain congressional action, 
I'm going to be very clear. I will not support any congressional action that is out of compliance with the JCPOA, because I think that would not be helpful by the United States Congress. But where I disagree with one of the statements you made is that I'm not going to allow Iran to determine what is in compliance with the JCPOA. And your statement that we don't want to give Iran a reason, uh, Iran has used interpretations that are far beyond any reasonable uh, coverage of what's in the JCPOA. So I just would urge us to be very careful as to how we interpret the JCPOA. We will use the international standards, but we will not use an Iranian standard. So I, I want to bring you back to how the Congress can help. We're an independent branch of government, and I remember very clearly the testimony before this committee when your predecessor, Secretary Sherman, gave a similar answer that you just gave, and that is we have the authority to take action. We don't need congressional action. But Congress did act, and we did strengthen the Iran Sanctions Act, and it was, uh, I think, partially responsible for bringing Iran to the negotiating tables and was helpful to get a stronger agreement because Congress did take action, even though the administration had the ability to take action on its own. So there are two areas that I want to get your view on. One is the extension of the Iran Sanctions Act, as you know, expires at the end of this year. That action, the administration has taken action under the waivers in order to implement the JCPOA, but having that as a backstop as we go beyond 2016 would seem to me to be critically important for U.S. leverage to make sure Iran complies with the agreement. So I just want to make sure of, of your view, if, if Congress takes action to extend the Iran Sanctions Act, whether the administration would look upon that as consistent with the JCPOA and the appropriate actions for an independent branch of government. And the second point I want you to respond to is what Chairman Corker talked about, and that is the ballistic missile sanctions that have been imposed by the administration is under executive order, basically, not under congressional mandate. It seems to me that ballistic missiles, which are not covered under the JCPOA, that the United States would be in a much stronger position if we had congressional sanction authorization in law. Uh, and as I said, I, I've never met an administration who didn't think they could do everything without the Congress. But having congressional uh, authority to impose these sanctions, I think, gives us a stronger position. So. Will the administration work with us on legislation to both extend the Iran Sanctions Act and to provide congressional basis for the ballistic missile sanctions that are being imposed? Uh, thank, thank you very much, Senator. Um, in regard to the first question, my understanding is that ISA ex uh, expires at the end of this year. Um, our, our view is that we should not be in a rush, and we should begin to understand how Iran is meeting its commitments under the JCPOA. And, and based on that, this will give us a stronger idea and feeling for what a renewed ISA might look like. 
but I can tell you that uh, we would be happy uh, to engage with this committee and the Congress uh, on a renewed Iran Sanctions Act, again, assuming that it does not uh, uh, complicate or um, uh, prevent us from uh, meeting JCPOA commitments. And in regards to a statutory authorization for sanctions against Iran for its ballistic missile violations? Again, we are opposed to Iran's ballistic missile program, and we are going to do everything in our power um, to delay and deter it and to protect our allies. As noted and as you noted, uh, we believe we have the authorities to do that, and we believe we have acted responsibly and rapidly in response to uh, Iran's ballistic missile activities. But again, um, we would be happy to talk with this committee and the Senate about what that legislation might look like. I, I thank you for that. I, I just would urge you to go back and take a look at the congressional record from when we passed the uh, sanction regime in 2010 uh, and, and look at the, the, what has happened since and how absolutely essential it was for congressional action in 2010 to lead to where we are today, which the administration is, is pleased about the JCPOA. 2010 was a major chapter in accomplishing that because of what Congress did, what this committee did. And uh, we're, this administration has nine months left, and uh, the JCPOA goes well beyond that. I would just urge you to be aggressively working with us to set up the appropriate statutory framework to make it clear to Iran that we won't tolerate ballistic missile violations. And it's not just a president, it's, it's the United States and the Congress working with the president that won't tolerate uh, that type of activities. Let me move on just to one other issue, if I might, just very briefly. And that deals with uh, the, the issue that the chairman raised uh, on the, the Russian participation. Uh, how does it complicate the uh, enforcement of the JCPOA, uh, the fact that Russia is preparing to give missile defense uh, support uh, to Iran? As you know, the, uh, Russia has been in the process of selling uh, S-300s to Iran since 2008, and for any number of reasons uh, has not done so. The purchase has not been finalized. The delivery has not been made. Uh, there was a press report today indicating that Russia is preparing uh, to uh, move an S-300 system uh, to Iran. Um, the S-300 is not prohibited under the UN Security Council resolu resolutions because it's a ground-to-air missile and is considered a defensive weapon system. I understand that. Uh, never, nevertheless, nevertheless, um, uh, we have made it very clear to the Russians that we consider this to be a bad move, that we consider it to be uh, destabilizing and not in keeping uh, with what we've been trying to accomplish, uh, not only through the GC JCPOA, but broadly uh, in, in terms of our engagement with Iran. Uh, well, I, I would just take it one step further. It, it seems to me that a, a missile defense system modernization from Russia to Iran makes it much more challenging for us to deal with the security concerns of our partners in that region. So it ups the ante for the United States 
and uh, it, it very much takes us to a new level of what we're going to need to do. Thank you. Uh, no doubt a missile system would do that, and the sale of fighter jets, which is what Russia is also looking at, SU-30s, would complicate that even further. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I just got back from a week in the, in the region, and the common consensus of four different heads of state and several military people in the region is that things have gotten materially worse, not better, since the JCPOA in terms of domestic security for these four countries that we visited. Uh, but I'm a little confused today, uh, particularly with comments that are coming out this week. Um, and I'd like to get you on the record, Ambassador, about uh, the UN violations or not viola violations. But in December, Am Ambassador Mull in this committee stated that ballistic, ballistic missile launches would d directly be a violation of UN Security Council Resolution 2231. Well, we've seen those missile firings before and after implementation day. And yet this week, American diplomats submitted a joint um, EU-US report that uh, says that the launches, and I quote, are inconsistent with UNSCR 2231, but not a violation. For the record, do you think that the ballistic missile uh, launches are, were indeed a violation of UN uh, Resolution 2231? Thank you very much, Senator. Um, from our point of view, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2231 prohibits Iran from launching ballistic missiles. Um, the language in 2231 is different from 1929, as you know. 1929 says Iran shall not undertake any activity related to ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Uh, 2231 calls upon Iran not to undertake any activity related to ballistic missiles designed to be capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Um, in nuclear parlance, I mean in, in international parlance, there is a, a distinction here, but for me it's a distinction without a difference. Um, from my point of view, 2231 is telling Iran that it should not be undertaking any activity related to, bal to ballistic missiles, and that's how we act. In other words, we responded to the ballistic missile launches with designations, and we will continue to respond. So we responded as if it were a violation? We did. Okay. So you, you think it is a violation? Then? Violation is a, let me put it this way. I believe it violated the intent of 2231 whether our international lawyers will say it, it violated 2231, this is why we use the word inconsistent. But from our point of view, these launches are prohibited and we are gonna do everything we can to stop them. So on the sanctions that we put in, and I, I um, agreed with the administration to do that, and I also agree with our ranking member that it would have more teeth if it were congressionally sanctioned. But in terms of those January sanctions, 11 entities and individuals were, were named, but it was interesting that Transportation companies that were involved in the, in the procurement and delivery of, these, uh, of this technology were, were not included. The financial partners were not included. Uh, members up and down the supply chain weren't included in that. So it seems to me that if we really wanted to stop the ballistic missile activity, we'd put sanctions on the full supply chain from A to B. Uh, can you speak to that about the, the omissions of those major players in that supply chain? Since um, 2010, when UN Security Council Resolution 1929 uh, was approved by the UN Security Council. I believe uh, we have designated uh, over 27 entities and people uh, that look not only at those providing equipment, but also those who are facilitating the provision of equipment. 
Um, I would be happy to, to talk with you about specific individuals or entities that interest you uh, and, and respond to that question. But I believe we have been focusing not just on providers of technology, but those who facilitate that, that technology Good. or the provision of that technology. Thank you. I'm also concerned about the, the, the liquid assets that are now available through the JCPOA for Iran and what they're going to be doing about that. Uh, the administration, when they were supporting JCPOA um, before its enactment, were adamant about uh, ensuring that uh, Iran would not continue to subsidize uh, Hezbollah and Bashar al-Assad. Can you give us an update on what the administration is doing to, uh, to assure uh, the people of the region that uh, that indeed is uh, being implemented? Uh, let me answer this in, in two tranches. Um, first, in, in regard to the monies made available uh, to Iran uh, through the JCPOA, uh, we assess that Iran has access to about $50 billion scattered throughout any number of banks. That's, that's pretty much cash. That's liquid today, correct? If they can get it. And um, then there are, there are other assets, as I understand it, that are liquidatable. Is that correct, in addition to the 50? That I'm not as sure, sure of. What, what I, what I um, have been told is that there was $100 uh, billion being held in overseas accounts, right. but that about $50 billion of that was already called for, uh, either through financial commitments that Iran has made, uh, through contracts, or uh, because of other um, aspects of the financial instruments that are being used, uh, but that the money available to Iran is about $50 billion. Um, but again, it's scattered throughout an international financial system and held at different banks, um, and, and therefore has to be accessed piecemeal and, and over time. Um, and this is something that, that we've been watching closely. Uh, and this is what the Secretary, was, Secretary Kerry was referring to when he said that, that there are times when we have to clarify our guidelines in regard to sanctions so that Iran does have access to monies that we have committed to, to make available to it. Uh, in regard to uh, whether or not Iran continues to fund um, terrorism-related activities or destabilizing activities in the region, there's no doubt that that's true, and we are seeing it. Um, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Lebanon and Hezbollah, whether it is in Yemen uh, with what they're doing with uh, the Houthi rebels. Uh, and we continue to do what we can through authorities that we have, both sanctioned authorities, uh, uh, given to us uh, through IEPA and through other legislation and through executive actions to, to sanction when possible and to counteract uh, the activities of, of Iran uh, in the region. Okay, thank you. Real quick, um, given the, the increased activity that Iran is uh, showing in the region since the JCPOA, can you give us an update on the memorandum of understanding uh, with Israel uh, uh, relative to the military assistance there. I know it doesn't expire until 18, I believe. Uh, and also, given that Iran has continues to make anti-Israel statements, even putting death Israel stenciling on the, on the missile that they've been testing, uh, I think this is really important that we, um, that we um, uh, reassert that uh, support for Israel in light of this increased activity. Can you give us an update on that uh, MOU? Uh, we are in the process of, of negotiating the MOU uh, with the government of Israel, uh, looking at how best uh, we can continue to meet the, the defense needs of Israel as it faces uh, the threats posed in the region, some of the most significant being from Iran, um, 
since the beginning of this administration, uh, over $20 billion has been provided uh, to Israel in defense spending, uh, including nearly $3 billion uh, to help uh, finance the Iron Dome anti-missile system. Over what period of time would that be? Um, the, the, the 20, 20 uh, over the, this administration, eight years. So eight years. Yeah. And, um, and I, I can get you the kind of the latest state of play of our negotiation uh, with the MOU, but it's, it's a, a constant uh, theme of our engagement with, with uh, Israel. But our intent is to continue to have well, the, the, the military edge, the quanti quantitative military edge that we've had in the Correct. past. In the region. Okay, thank you. Thank Correct. you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, uh, you know, I have the greatest respect for you. I've supported you in your role as ambassador. I've supported you in this role. Uh, so, you know, uh, it is with that respect that I, I have uh, the following statement, though. I am seriously concerned, as I listened, uh, I was at a meeting but had the TV on, listened to your answers to the chairman and the ranking member, about statements that suggest that we have to watch what we do because we don't want to have Iran walk away from the table. Well, this administration, uh, led by the Secretary of State before this committee, after question after question after question, said very clearly that we were free to pursue all other actions of the Iranians that are against the national interest and security of the United States outside of the nuclear portfolio. And so I see all these cautionary remarks all the time. I see all these caveats. Uh, I don't understand them. I don't understand them. I don't understand when the president himself, in remarks uh, this week, said that while Iran may have followed the letter of the agreement, uh, they have not followed the spirit, sending signals to the world community uh, that is of a series of provocative actions. And among that, failure to follow the spirit, the president himself acknowledged launching ballistic missiles, repeatedly calling for the destruction of Israel, shipping weapons to Hezbollah. Not my comments, the president's comments. Now, uh, to that I would add, uh, a, its status as a state sponsor of terrorism, its acts of aggression designed to destabilize our allies in the region, its efforts to disrupt shipping through the state of Hormuz, its illegal detention and despicable humiliation of American sailors, its trafficking in weapons, its cyber attacks uh, events, and I, I think many of those you recited in your uh, opening statement. So uh, what bothers me is that we seem to create a permissive environment, uh, as is exemplified by what happened uh, in the missile uh, issues that have been raised and I want to further pursue with you, in which we are treading on eggshells about doing anything else in this whole universe that we admittedly recognize is against the national security interests of the United States. So why, why are we, for example, knowing that resources, whatever amount it is, is in part going to fund these very activities that we acknowledge collectively is against our national interests? Why are we, for example, when the president says, well, we're not going to use dollars to do business with Iran, which is good news, but then goes on to say it's possible for them to work through European financial institutions, which ultimately transact with the United States, or that the administration reportedly is also seeking ways to ensure that U.S. regulations do not deter foreign reinsurance companies from providing uh, insurance coverage for Iranian shipping. As two examples, why are we, outside of meeting our strict obligations, facilitating the possibilities for them to use their resources in such a way 
that is against our interests. Well, thank you very much, uh, Senator, and again, thank you for your support. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I, let, let me um, be clear if I was not in my, my earlier comments. Um, when, when I talked about wanting to make sure that actions uh, taken in regard to uh, re-upping sanctions legislations uh, did not interfere with JCPOA uh, uh, commitments, my purpose wasn't to say that we are walking on eggshells with the Iranians. My purpose was not to say that we are somehow um, pulling punches or stepping away from, from firm uh, pursuit of JCPOA commitments or, as you noted, uh, broader understandings of concerns about Iran. Um, that's not the case. We just want to make sure that as Iran meets its commitments, we meet our commitments. Uh, and we understand what, what those commitments are. And as, uh, as we look at Iran's behavior broadly uh, in the region, um, I would agree with everything you've noted. Um, we are concerned by it. We are appalled in some instances by it. But we are working actively to push back on it and to stop it where we can whether it is in support for, for regional terrorism, whether it's in support for groups like Hezbollah or the Houthi rebels, or whether in its pursuit of a ballistic missile program. And as the, the Secretary and the President noted, um, we are not going to uh, caveat that and we are not going to, to soft pedal that. Um, well, let, let, me, let me interrupt you. I appreciate sure. what you're saying, but uh, specifically, for example, if we wanted to pull no punches and make it very clear uh, that instead of sanctioning individuals, which is like playing whack-a-mole, uh, we would sanction financial institutions that are helping to finance the ballistic missiles and other activities. That has not seemed to be the administration's uh, effort, which we have recognized from the Congress that when we f uh, sanction financial institutions, the broad reach and effect of that is really consequential to the Iranians. And if we understand the nature of their obligations, let's turn to the missile issue. Uh, last July, when Secretary Kerry was before the committee, I asked him, and I quote, is Iran banned from ballistic missile work under terms of Security Council Resolution 2231? The UN instrument endorsed the JCPOA and that superseded previous UN Security Council resolutions with respect to Iran. And his answer, was rather unequivocal. He said, it's exactly what it is today. And I'm quoting verbatim for the transcript. It's the same language. Well, I disputed that because there is a difference between shall and calls upon. And if, in fact, it's exactly the same language, if the Secretary's interpretation was correct, that 2231 explicitly prohibits Iran from testing ballistic missiles, then why would the United States and our European allies not push for the toughest language in the letter that was sent to the Security Council? Why not call it what it is, which is a violation? Which is it? Is it a violation? Or did we soften the language in such a way that permits exactly what Iran is doing now? The language used in the letter was that Iran's launch was inconsistent with UN Security Council 2231, um, and not it was in violation of 2231. Again, I would argue that this is a distinction without a difference because we are convinced that 2231 prohibits these kinds of launches, that there is a strong international commitment 
Well, if, the, if, to that stop was the, these. if that was the case, why did we not use the word violation? If we believe it's prohibited, why did we not use the word violation? I'm not an international lawyer, sir. Okay, um, so, but so let me close on this. You're not an international lawyer. Uh, I'm not an international lawyer, but I was a lawyer before I came to this institution. And I understand the difference between call upon and shall. And there is a fundamental difference. And finally, I would say to you that as the chairman and the ranking member have discussed the Iran Sanctions Act that I authored with others, it needs to be reauthorized now because otherwise we do not send a very clear message to Iran that if they violate terms, we have something to snap back to. The administration sat before this committee and the Senate and said, well, we can snap back. Well, you can't snap back to something that doesn't exist at the end of the day. And so, again, this tentativeness about worried about what Iran will do seems to have frozen us, and, and the suggestion of that is that the Senate should be frozen as well. I hope the Senate will not, Mr. Chairman. And on missile uh, sanctions, which I think should be pursued, particularly on financial institutions, uh, on this question of reauthorizing the Iran Sanctions Act, among others, uh, I would urge the chair and the ranking member, and I have legislation I'm happy to engage with the chair and the ranking member on, to do some of this, because I think we're headed in the wrong direction. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I, I just, uh, you know, I think there's an issue, and that is that most of us don't want to let a national security waiver be used to enter into an international agreement, and I think if we can get past that issue, then uh, we might end up with some very strong uh, bipartisan legislation. I, you were working on Venezuela and other issues, which we appreciated your efforts there. Um, but this called upon language was a message to us that we were going to wink and nod on this issue and we were going to give the other countries the ability not to enforce. And that's why many of us were concerned. While you were working on Venezuela, we were also concerned that we were giving away leverage that on the front end, Iran would get all of this relief, and then we would be on the eggshells that Senator Menendez just mentioned, in that then all of a sudden the administration will be concerned. If we push back, they might walk away since they got everything they wanted on the front end. So just, just know that you're reciting, you're, you're like exhibit A to why there was so much concern about this agreement and the things that you're saying today. Senator Brasso. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Mr. Mr. Bess, thanks so much for being with you. I think we all agree when you said we're opposed to what's happening with ballistic missile testing. You, you want to do everything in your power uh, to delay and deter it. We just have questions if that's actually happening with this administration. I, I don't believe it is. I think that the administration uh, is not doing all, all that it can. I look at the recent sanctions. I think Senator Menendez referred to as playing whack-a-mole. There are sanctions on individuals, uh, some entities. Uh, can you tell us here today that those recent sanctions are actually going to change Iran's calculus and actually have an impact on Iran's ballistic missile program, given that they'd done testing in October, testing in November, and te in March last month, two successive days of ballistic missile testing? No, thank you. Thank you very much for the question. Um, Iran is intent on pursuing a ballistic missile program. Uh, it sees it not only as part of uh, its larger strategic weapons program, um, but it also plays an important political role uh, in Iran, especially in the aftermath of the JCPOA. Uh, hardliners in Iran lost on the nuclear issue. Uh, they're intent on doubling down on the ballistic missile program. So we can expect more launches. Um, but in that regard, we are very intent 
on doing everything we can to deter and delay that program, and at the same time, work with our partners in the region to ensure that they can protect themselves, and that it becomes clear that the strategic weapons program that Iran has continues to complicate its existence internationally, continues to call into question how it behaves internationally, and it becomes increasingly less relevant as our partners and our allies increase their ability uh, to protect themselves. But since 2010, if I have my numbers right, we've designated over 27 uh, entities and individuals uh, related to Brazil's, uh, to um, uh, Iran's ballistic missile program. And we will continue uh, to designate individuals and entities as we determine their role. And not only in response to ballistic missiles, but also as we determine uh, which entities and individuals are playing a role, not just in the provision of technologies, but also in the facilitation of technology. I think what you're hearing here is that uh, Congress believes yeah. that the administration needs a stronger backbone in legislation to say, uh, to allow you to accomplish the goal that we've had to delay and, and deter. The, um, with regard to the Russian sale to Iran, it came up uh, earlier, the chairman raised that, UN Security Council Resolution 2231 requires the Security Council approval of any sale of major combat systems uh, to Iran. So Russia and Iran have been discussing an agreement for Russia to sell the Iran Su-30, the combat aircraft, the T-90 tanks, helicopter gunships. Just to clarify, would the United States veto the approval of such a sale at the UN Security Council? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, can you talk about how the sales of a system contemplated that they're talking about, how would, to Iran could affect the balance of power in the region? Are you talking about the systems you, you just... Yeah, that you said that, the, 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 at this point that the, the, the United States... The SU-30s or the S-300s? The 30. Yeah. The fighter jets. Yeah. Yeah, obviously we have no interest in Iran having uh, enhanced either fighter, air fighter capability or enhanced uh, ground combat capability. Uh, and any weapons that Iran can use offensively, um, we would seek to oppose in whatever way we, we can. Yeah, I want to talk a little about just kind of terror in the area. Iran is a state sponsor of terror, continuing to threaten Israel. Uh, we've heard that from a senator who's just returned from the region, uh, continues to threaten the region with ballistic missile testing. You know, it, it appears that the administration could be afraid of Iran threatening to pull out of the nuclear deal, truly believes the foreign countries, businesses might risk ties to the United States. You read the Wall Street Journal editorial this weekend uh, calling more, called more dollars for the Ayatollahs. Uh, it says, the latest administration cave-in could have been predicted from every previous U.S. capitulation to the, to the mullahs, except, uh, ex expect other concessions as Tehran takes the full measure of America's weakness. That's a concern. Uh, so what other actions do you know that the administration is considering that could provide additional sanction relief uh, to Iran beyond what have been uh, committed to by the JCPOA? At this point, none. Uh, you know, we have met our commitments under the JCPOA. Uh, and I, I think it's important to note at this point um, that the way the G JCPOA was structured, it's really Iran that gave everything up front as opposed to the United States. Uh, it was Iran that tore down uh, its uh, centrifuges. It was Iran that poured concrete uh, into its uh, heavy water reactor. Uh, and because of this, as I noted in my opening statement, um, we have been able to push back uh, Iran's 
breakout period uh, in pursuit of a, a nuclear weapon from a few months uh, to, to over a year. Uh, and as we continue the, the implementation of JCPOA, uh, we believe uh, we are in a very strong position to ensure that Iran cannot develop uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, that's a huge accomplishment, and it's an accomplishment that, uh, that this Senate can take huge pride in, uh, as can the executive branch, because we have had to work together in pursuit of that, both through the sanctions authority that this uh, legislative body authorized and through the diplomacy that we were able to fashion built around that kind of uh, legislative authority. Uh, but as, as we look uh, into the future, uh, we are intent on meeting our commitments, period. Uh, we are not intent on providing additional sanctions relief. Uh, and we are intent on successful uh, implementation of JCPOA. So just want to get, get this clarified. What I've heard from the chairman and others in a bipartisan way is many of us believe that it's the administration that gave away everything up front. You're testifying today, no, no, in fact, it was Iran that gave up everything up front. Indeed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ambassador Shannon. Um, just I want to repeat an element of your testimony and then do some follow-up. Page two, Iran has taken significant irreversible steps that have fundamentally changed the trajectory of its nuclear program. Simply put, the JCPOA is working. It has effectively cut off all of Iran's pathways to building a nuclear weapon. This has made the United States, Israel, the Middle East, and the world safer and more secure. Um, that is your testimony. I don't need to ask you about it. It's for the record. But I was interested that there is now starting to be public comment by Israeli officials that might be somewhat different, but essentially making the same point. The Israeli IDF chief of staff, who's the equivalent of our head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Gaddy Eisenkot, in January, the nuclear deal with, with Iran contains, quote, many risks but also opportunities, the Israel IDF Chief of Staff Gaddy Eisenkot said Monday. Speaking at the Ninth Annual Security Challenges Conference at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, Eisenkot said that, quote, the nuclear deal with Iran constitutes a strategic turning point compared to what IDF faced over the past decade. Eisenkot's long-term assessment is that, quote, Iran will make great efforts to fulfill their side of the bargain and enjoy the benefits. However, Iran will continue to see itself as a regional power, and after 15 years, when the terms of the deal expire, may turn again, may turn again toward expanding its nuclear capabilities. In the meantime, Eisenkot said, the deal reduces the immediate Iranian threat to Israel because it rolls back Iran's nuclear capability and deepens the monitoring capabilities of the international community into Tehran's activities. Many of us had heard Iranian officials say those words to us, I mean, Israeli officials say those words to us privately. Many of us had seen anonymous reports from Israeli officials publicly or had seen reports from former Israeli officials. Uh, Gadi Eisenkot's predecessor, uh, General Benny Gantz, after the deal was done in September, said a better deal may have been possible, but he also acknowledged the final agreement's success in putting off a nuclear-armed Iran for at least 10 to 15 years. Diplomacy, he said, had prevented war from breaking out. It is the Israelis who have been the most focused, as they should be to some degree, on whether this deal would work or not. But you now have the current IDF chief of staff, essentially the equivalent of our head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and his immediate predecessor, both saying that this deal has prevented war 
and will forestall an Iranian nuclear program for at least 10 to 15 years. I think that testimony from our key ally, from the IDF chiefs of our key ally, uh, is validation of the point that you make on page two in your testimony. Let me now ask this. If that is the IDF, current IDF uh, head's position about the deal, three of the five individuals currently running for president of the United States say the United States should exit the deal, the JCPOA. Two said that they should rip it up. One said the U.S. should withdraw from the deal. From the deal. Based on your testimony and the stated public position of the head of the Israeli military, talk a little bit about what it would mean for the United States, alone among the nations that negotiated this deal, to rip up the deal or back away from it. Thank you very much for the question, and thank you for uh, highlighting the, the comments of um, the IDF chief of staff. Um, we would agree with him completely. Uh, we share that assessment. We believe that through JCPOA, uh, Iran has given up its ambition of a nuclear weapon and has submitted to a international structure of intervention uh, and compliance that allows us great insight into the nuclear program and will, if complied with, uh, create a, a program that is exclusively peaceful. That is our purpose and our attention. That is the intention of the international community. In an environment as conflictive and combustible as the Middle East, making sure that a country like Iran does not have a nuclear weapon has to be a strategic goal of utmost importance. And we believe we have accomplished that. And we would argue that any effort to step away from JCPOA would reopen a Pandora's box in that region that we do not think we could close again because it would highlight um, a, uh, an inability of the United States to maintain a, a continuity and stability in an approach. Um, when we accomplished what the U.S. government and the U.S. Congress has been seeking for more than a decade, which is no nuclear weapon uh, in Iran. Uh, hypothetically, if we were to contemplate stepping away from the JCPOA, uh, we would not be followed by our P5 plus one colleagues. Quite the contrary. Uh, this would become an issue of extraordinary concern and division between ourselves and our P5 plus one colleagues. But more importantly, it would be grasped by supporters of a nuclear program in Iran and by hardliners in Iran to assert that we were uh, an unreliable interlocutor uh, and that uh, our stepping away from the JCPOA would be a clear signal that they need to return to their nuclear weapons program with either even greater urgency. And so we would view that as very dangerous. Isn't it in the security interest of the world that we keep everyone's attention on Iran's activities rather than on the U.S. negotiating tactics? Uh, as, as, I, as I noted and as, as you noted, um, we are very focused on what Iran is doing. And it's very important in our diplomacy and in our engagement with our partners that we highlight where Iran steps out of bounds. And this is what the president was referring to when he said that Iran was not complying with the spirit of the JCPOA because the spirit was one of engagement, the spirit was one of highlighting the peaceful nature of, of a nuclear program. 
or the ambition of, of creating a peaceful program, but what it is doing elsewhere um, indicates otherwise. And therefore, our ability, while we implement the JCPOA and while we consolidate this important strategic accomplishment, that we continue to highlight and focus Iran's bad behavior in terms of its regional activities, in terms of its support for Hezbollah, in terms of its support for the Houthi rebels, in terms of its support for the Assad regime, uh, its support of terrorism, uh, and uh, its ballistic missile program, from our point of view, is a centerpiece of how we're going to deal with Iran. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, if I could, I, I, and I, I know that we've worked together on, I don't think, I think the types of efforts that legislatively people are looking at are not inconsistent with the JCPOA. I just want to restate that comment. It's to push back on those areas. The only way an agreement can bear the fruit that people laid out to uh, hope that it would like, uh, bring in the front end is to make sure it's not violated. And I think that uh, there's those issues, but in addition to that, the activities in the region, and that's where the focus legislatively is, not to counter the JCPOA, but to make sure that it's enforced and to push back on other activities that are destabilizing the region. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, so I want to go back to this issue of uh, access to the dollar. Um, I think it's, I, I saw a recent example cited in a blog and I wanted to get some pretty clear understanding about how this would or would not work. So I think the, the example that was used is a Swiss company who sells a product of any kind to Iran. Now I think the president and everyone's been pretty clear what they're not allowed to do. They're not allowed to go through a U.S. bank to turn the real into a dollar and then a dollar into a Swiss franc. That's pretty clear and I think that's been outlined. But here's what I want to get at, and that is an alternative mechanism. And I want to, this outlines an alternative mechanism, and I want to understand whether or not this alternative mechanism is allowed or not under this agreement. The way it would work under this scenario that was played out is that the U.S. would allow a general license for a bank, a U.S. bank, to provide dollars to a non-U.S. clearinghouse uh, somewhere overseas. And then what would happen is that the Iran would pay a European bank uh, in, in reals. Uh, the European bank would then exchange those reals for euros. It would then go to that clearinghouse and swap the euro out for a dollar, bring the dollar back and exchange the dollars for Swiss francs, and then pay that to the Swiss company. Is that sort of arrangement something that would be allowed under the agreement? I'm not sure. I'll, I would have to check because if it doesn't touch a, a U.S. bank, if it doesn't touch the U.S. financial system, um, because what, what our, our sanctions legislation has done and what, what we have been able to accomplish in terms of, of limiting Iran's access to our larger financial system is we have not permitted uh, U-turn authorization. In other words, no exchange of dollars inside the U.S. financial system, and we have not allowed it access to our larger financial system. Um, but I, I do not know, I'm, again, I'm not a financial expert here. I'd have to check with, with Treasury. Uh, but I, I do not know if what you've just described is authorized. Well, under do you know if that kind of mechanism was discussed as part of this negotiation? Was, cause, uh, and I, thought that, I know that the chairman's already alluded to this earlier, but in an interview today, Secretary Kerry implied that Iran deserves the benefits of the agreement they struck. Is there within that agreement? some sort of understanding with Iran that we would be helpful to them in figuring out how to get access to the dollar, even if it is through a one-step removed process like the one I've outlined. The, the agreement is, is, is clear in terms of what our commitments are, and we believe we've met those commitments. 
Um, my understanding of the Secretary's remarks is that we have worked with U.S. Treasury and with banks to clarify what sanctions relief is and what banks are allowed to do in order to uh, avoid any kind of punitive action for um, taking steps that are not permitted uh, under, under the JCPOA. Um, and so my understanding is that our efforts to ensure that Iran has access to assets that we have, have committed to release to them is really about ensuring that banks understand how that money can be accessed. It is not my understanding that there's anything beyond that. Has the, has the Department of State received instructions from the White House or has the Department of State in any way signaled to Treasury that it needs to search for ways to allow Iran to get access to dollars through a mechanism that doesn't directly in, impact the transaction within a U.S. bank? Uh, I have not received that instruction. Well, again, I mean, the, the fundamental question here, I know you say it doesn't touch the dollar. I would just want to make this point for the record. By allowing a U.S. bank a general license to move this money offshore, it is, in essence, allowing them access to the U.S. dollar. It is not technically happening within the United States, per se, but we know what that money is going to be used for. The general license would be used to provide liability protection to the U.S. bank, but the only reason why that money would be moving to an offshore entity, a clearinghouse, is so that Iran could get access to dollars. And I think this is an important point that we need to get some clarity on, whether I guess it would be from Treasury. But, uh, but that sort of mechanism has never been discussed with the Congress, from my understanding. And if it is, in fact, part of a, this agreement, we've never been notified of that as well. And I guess what I'm trying to get at the core of is, was there, and, and, and you're saying that you don't, your testimony here today is that that's not the case, but was there ever a moment, or is it part of this agreement that we would somehow help Iran get access to dollars in some way that did not violate the need to deal directly with the U.S. bank, and you've said here today that you're not aware of that ever being part of this agreement or conversation in any way. Yeah, again, I, I did not take a part in, in the negotiations of the agreement, um, but my reading of the agreement indicates otherwise. Uh, one more point on access to the U.S. banking sector. This is not just about punitive action. It is also in the fact that even irrespective of the nuclear program, the Iranian banking sector has posed a hazard because of its laundering activities and so forth. Do we have, is there any, has Iran taken any actions to halt the use of its financial institutions for money laundering or for other illicit behavior? My understanding is it's much careful about, much more careful about which institutions it uses, um, but it, it still is engaged in money laundering activities that, that um, we attempt to block and, and stop. So if I could, just since there's a minute left on it, I, th I think it was the money laundering and illicit financing that put these uh, restrictions in place in the beginning, and that is still occurring. And I just, my observation is that Secretary Kerry and or others within the State Department that spent a lot of time on this agreement are trying to figure out a way to accommodate Iran. My sense is Treasury at this point still has held firm and hopefully they will but uh, I do think there's not congruence right now at the administration level, and I'm glad that pressure is being applied uh, to ensure that uh, we don't try to accommodate them, that only Iran gets only what they negotiated, um, which to me was too much, and that we're not out there trying to make this agreement work better for them uh, after the fact, especially when they're violating uh, the ballistic missile testing. I mean, it's an incredible thing that we would want to accommodate on one end while we know 
they're in essence uh, in our face on another issue that we, we, we see as a clear violation. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Secretary Shannon, um, in response to recent questions about the administration's plan to provide Iran with additional relief from U.S. financial sanctions, President Obama stated that existing restrictions would remain in place. He also noted that Iran's difficulties in doing business abroad has more to do with his own, its own aggressive actions, including ballistic missile tests, than it does with U.S. financial restrictions. This morning, Secretary Kerry reiterated that Iran deserves the benefits of the agreement they struck, but that if they want to capture the broader benefits of global commerce, they need to change their aggressive behavior. Rather than changing any current rules that restrict Iran's access to the dollar-based financial system, the President suggested that the Treasury Department could clarify to foreign financial institutions the kind of activities that are permissible under current restrictions. What kind of changes would we have to see in Iran's behavior with respect to missile development, support for terrorism and human rights violations before we would consider changing existing restrictions on Iran's access to our financial system? They'd have to stop. Um, I mean, in terms of, of, of sanctions that, that limit uh, Iran's access to the U.S. financial system, um, you know, this is related to a, a whole series of, of Iranian behaviors um, that we find reprehensible. Um, but um, uh, it, what, what, you, what you said at the beginning of, of your question is, is important. Both the President and the Secretary made clear that while we will meet our commitments under the JCPOA, that Iran's ability to benefit economically and financially uh, from a greater openness to the world and the lifting of sanctions depends not just on the lifting of those sanctions. It depends on the environment it creates inside of Iran, first to attract businesses and investment, um, but also to establish a degree of confidence as, as Iran engages generally in its, uh, uh, within the larger international community. And as long as uh, Iran behaves as it is behaving in the area of terrorism, in the area of regional destabilization, in the area of ballistic missile development, um, there will be a, uh, a natural prejudice against some aspects of economic and financial engagement with it. But you're saying that Iran does have it within its own power to Indeed. change its behavior that then would uh, help to yes. give the United States the ability to relax and, existing yes. um, access to the financial system? Yes. Okay. Um, in addition to imposing restrictions on Iran's nuclear weapons program, one of the great opportunities that the JCPOA provides is to raise the standards for the overall nonproliferation regime. I recently joined Senator Cantwell and other senators in writing a letter to President Obama that detailed the number of steps the administration could take to do that. One of these would be to expand the worldwide application of the additional protocol which provides the IAEA with enhanced inspection rights, including the right to inspect a country's entire fuel cycle and to conduct environmental sampling beyond declared facilities. Iran signed its additional protocol agreement with the IAEA in 2003, and under the JCPOA, it has agreed to implement it fully. What steps is the administration taking to encourage all MPT parties to sign and implement additional protocol agreements with the IAEA? 
No, thank you for the point on the additional protocol and the IAEA. Um, the, uh, the commitment by Iran to provisionally apply the additional protocol and then ultimately to accept fully the additional protocol uh, is, in the world of nonproliferation, a huge deal. Uh, and uh, indicates that uh, the IAEA will have enhanced uh, capabilities to measure and track uh, Iranian uh, compliance, not only with the JCPOA, but broadly with the N NPT. Uh, and, and this is a, a huge concession uh, on Iran's part, and one that was viewed uh, with concern uh, around the world by those who do not adhere to the additional protocol. And so, uh, uh, Committing to the additional protocol is the centerpiece of much of what we try to do in our nonproliferation work. Uh, and it's uh, something that my colleagues at State Department who work in the area of nonproliferation address uh, on, an, on a regular basis. And we will continue to do so. And it's our hope that uh, in this regard that Iran's willingness to, to accept an additional protocol uh, should be seen as a, a, a point of reflection uh, for our partners around the world who have not done so. Okay. And another step that the administration could take to strengthen nonproliferation would be to achieve a ban on the production of fissile material in the Middle East. Under the terms of the JCPOA, Iran has agreed not to produce uranium enriched beyond the 3 percent threshold for at least 15 years, but it has expressed a willingness to extend that restriction if its neighbors promise to do the same. What steps is the administration taking to discourage the additional any additional uh, countries from um, the Middle East from engaging in that kind of activity? I think the JCPOA itself uh, is a powerful reason for countries in the region not to develop their own nuclear enrichment capability because they are not facing a threat from Iran through a nuclear weapon at this point in time. Um, but uh, we will we continue in our, in our regular engagement throughout the region in our regular security um, uh, discussions uh, to begin to identify and understand the security um, threats and vulnerabilities that our partners face uh, and to help them find ways to address them um, without approaching a, a nuclear threshold. Uh, we're, we do this um, with the Gulf Coordinating Council. Secretary Kerry will be meeting with uh, the Gulf Coordinating Council ministers uh, in Bahrain um, at the end of the week and the president will be meeting in Riyadh with the leaders in the near future. So the administration is specifically encouraging all states in the Middle East to, uh, to not pursue uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing facilities? Anywhere we can, yes. So you are doing that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary Shannon, for your time here today. And I want to clarify a remark that you uh, made earlier, and I believe it came in response, or at least after your exchange with Senator Brasso, where I believe you had said that Iran was the one that gave up everything up front. And I think later on, in perhaps another question and answer with another senator, you had mentioned that Iran has given up its ambitions of a nuclear program. I don't want to misquote you. What, what, what did you say? Um, I'll have to go back and check the transcript, but my, my intent was that it has given up its ambition of a nuclear weapon. You believe that Iran has given up its ambition of a nuclear weapon. Is that that's an accurate portrayal of your statement? At this point, through, it, because of the, G, the JCPOA, as it is implemented, uh, prevents Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon. And so at, by at this point, but I mean, do you believe that Iran is testing ballistic missiles with someday the hope of putting a nuclear warhead on it? 
Well, this, this is one of the reasons why uh, we are concerned about the ballistic missile program, and especially about ballistic missiles that have the capability or designed to have the capability to launch nuclear weapons. Um, but the JCPOA, as it is implemented today and over time, uh, will not allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. Should, should for whatever reason... Today or, to, today or over time, is that what you said? Correct. Now, how many of the Gulf Council countries agree with you on that point? In, in terms of... How many of our allies in the region agree with you that Iran has completely given up its nuclear weapons program? I, I think at this point they would agree, given what Iran has done in terms of tearing down... Leadership it, in Saudi Arabia, leadership in Qatar privately would agree with you? And that I, they've given up their ambitions toward a nuclear weapon and that they're testing a ballistic missile uh, to put a conventional warhead on top? Qatar, I don't know, because I haven't been there and spoken with them. Um, I have been in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the Saudis view the Iranians um, uh, as a real danger in the region. Um, uh, and they view them as a danger in the region for, for any number of ways. Um, but If I may, though, do you, do you believe, though, that they're testing a ballistic missile with someday the hopes of putting a nuclear warhead on it? That was their purpose when they began their ballistic missile program. Is it no longer their purpose today? You know, um, it's, it's not their purpose if they can't achieve a nuclear weapon. Well, then why would they test a ballistic missile? Because it's a strategic weapon system that can carry different payloads. Like a nuclear weapon? Indeed, and, th and this is why... So, but let me, let me just drill down on this, because yeah. this is important. Because if the administration is so concerned about a ballistic missile, and as if you have said, they have given up their ambitions for a nuclear weapon, do they believe that they would like to, do you believe that they would, in hope, they continue to test a ballistic missile in hopes of putting a nuclear warhead on it? No, I understand the point. And, and I would just reiterate that we are opposed to this ballistic missile program. Well, I, I understand that you're, you're talking about how appalled that we are and how concerned we are. But yes or no, do you believe Iran hopes to put a nuclear weapon on top of a ballistic missile? At this point, no, because they can't. Mr. Shannon, I think uh, in conversations I've had with allies in the region, nobody there believes that they've given up their nuclear weapons ambition. And, and I, I think that it's important to, to, to address, yes, this outrage over ballistic missile, but yet we haven't put in the full measure of responses that we said we would in order to prevent them from continuing to test a ballistic missile. And I don't believe that they're testing a ballistic missile just to, to show that they can do it. I believe they're doing it with the purpose of continuing to develop uh, a nuclear weapons program. Uh, in fact, I have heard from mm -hmm. leaders in the region where they talk about at the end of this 12-year period where they believe they'll have just a, a short amount of time to indeed possess and develop a nuclear weapon. That's what the leaders in the region will tell you. Secretary Kerry said in a letter in September, September 2nd, to the Senate, saying that the full measure of U.S. response would be uh, affected if Iran continues to push this, its bad behaviors like testing ballistic missiles. I don't believe that we have done that. Do you think we've done everything possible to stop Iran's testing of ballistic missiles? Within the authorities that we have been given, uh, we have. But this is an evolving situation. And as we determine where Iran is getting its... Given, given within, the, within the authorities we've been given, what authorities are preventing us from fully and effectively countering Iran's ballistic missile program? The authorities we have under sanctions authorities, 
uh, are being used and being used effectively. The problem we face in Iran. And by effective, do you mean that it stopped their ballistic missile program? Because that's certainly not the case. No, but it has deterred and delayed it by limiting the ability of external uh, assistance to that program and, and, and proliferation assistance to that program. Iran has an indigenous capability that we cannot affect in the short term, but we can limit and delay Iran's ability to build out its ballistic missile program, and in the process, as we gain time through that, we can work with our partners in the region to ensure that they have the capability to defend themselves and that we have the capability also to help them defend themselves. So let me get this straight. By their continual testing of ballistic missiles, we believe that that is a delay of their ballistic missile program. Considering where it would be absent the sanctions authority, yes. It is, it's not where we want to be, obviously, um, but, but Iran sees this ballistic missile program as an important part of, of its strategic weapons systems, and it will continue along this route. We just need to make sure that it doesn't get there in any fast time. Well, Secretary Shannon, then, do you believe that our sanctions efforts against Iran for its ballistic missile program has been a success or a failure? It has been an, an effective tool, but it has not been a complete success, obviously not, because they're launching. In the Wall Street Journal, April 4th, uh, the ambassador, the UAE ambassador to the United States stated, it is now clear that one year since the framework for the deal was agreed upon, Iran sees it as an opportunity to increase yeah. hostilities in the region. But instead of accepting this as an unfortunate reality, the international community must intensify its actions to check Iran's strategic amb ambitions. Do you agree with the ambassador's assessment? I do. Uh, have our allies in the region expressed similar concerns? Yes. And have we acted uh, appropriately in response to these concerns? We're working very closely with our partners around the region to ensure that they have the ability to defend themselves. So Iran sees the agreement, the framework, as an opportunity to increase hostilities in the region. Could you outline some of those increase, increases in hostilities? As I noted in, in my testimony and, and in previous comments, um, what Iran is doing in Syria, what it's doing in Lebanon with Hezbollah, uh, what it's doing in Yemen uh, with the Houthis, uh, are destabilizing actions uh, that we believe are pose significant danger uh, to our allies and partners in the region. And we are responding to them uh, by working with our allies and partners, uh, by enhancing their capability uh, to defend themselves, and by looking for ways to build broader diplomatic connectivity in the region that will allow them to push back on Iran in, in a significant way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know my time has expired. I would, uh, I think this is an important part of the testimony, and for you, I know you're new and you're in this particular position and you're getting some leeway today because of that, but I mean, for you to state that you know they're going to continue to do the ballistic missile testing they're doing in clear violation does speak to the fact that certainly we don't need to be accommodating them relative to dollars but we should be punishing them for violating the intent of this law. We think it violates it specifically. And you mentioned the need for within the authorities you have. I assure you that on a bipartisan basis, if you guys feel you need additional authorities, um, I think you could pass them out of here uh, very quickly. So um, I, I think it's unsatisfying to listen to that line of questioning and for you to state you know they're going to continue to violate and yet we got the Secretary of State acting as if we need to accommodate them because they didn't negotiate the deal good enough. Um, Senator Shaheen. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Undersecretary Shannon. It's very nice to have you here, finally. Um, I want to continue some of the questioning around the ballistic missile program because I, I was interested that U.S. response to the program last week, um, we blacklisted two Iranian companies for supporting the ballistic missile program, and we sanctioned two British businessmen for helping um, an airline that was used by the Iran Revolutionary Guards, and that France has also suggested that there could be unilateral European Union sanctions against Iran over the launches. Um, as we know, one of the reasons that the sanction regime, regime was so effective in pushing Iran to the negotiating table to get us the JCPOA is because of the international sanctions that really worked together to put pressure on Iran. So can you talk about how, how realistic it might be for the Europeans to um, put additional sanctions on Iran over their ballistic missile tests? Well, thank you very much, Senator, and uh, thank, thank you for that question. Um, I, I know that our uh, European colleagues, the European Union, uh, Germany, France, and the UK, uh, agree with us on ballistic missile testing. Uh, they view ballistic missile testing uh, as a danger not just to the region uh, but to themselves. Uh, and uh, for this reason, uh, we have worked in concert with them in response to uh, ballistic missile um, tests. And it's why they joined us uh, in writing a letter um, to the UN Security Council highlighting uh, the, um, the, the recent ballistic missile tests. Um, so they are partners that were effective and important in implementing the sanctions regime that led to JCPOA. And I believe that they will work with us to attempt to address the ballistic missile uh, launch issue. Um, we would have to have a larger discussion with them about what an enhanced sanctions regime might look like in regard to ballistic missiles, um, but they would at least be prepared to have that discussion. Um, the Secretary General of NATO, Stoltenberg, is here this week, and um, is there a role for NATO, given that the ballistic missiles pose a potential threat to NATO countries? Is there a role for NATO in thinking about how we should respond to Iran on the missile issue? Uh, I'm sure there is. I, I'm not uh, capable at this point of delineating it, except that it would be related to how we work missile defense systems uh, internally inside of Europe and protection of NATO countries, um, which we do already in, in some parts of, of the region. Um, I know that whenever um, Iran has launched a missile that there has been activity at the UN to try and condemn that, um, and that Russia has really been the obstructionist in many of those cases to our taking stronger action at the UN. So can you talk about what other actions we might be able to take to counter what Russia's doing? Well, we've been engaging with the Russians regularly on this um, for several purposes. First, in order to try to the extent possible uh, to ensure that we have coherence and cohesion uh, within the P5 plus one as we address JCPOA implementation and as we address any other activities of Iran um, that are dealt with in uh, UN Security Council, uh, the most recent UN Security Council resolution, 2231. Um, 
And uh, in, in this regard, we have a difference with the Russians. Uh, and so we have been engaging with them uh, at many different levels to try to find a way to, to address that, that disagreement. Um, we've got uh, a, a commitment, however, from the Russians in terms of working to prohibit the transfer of technologies to Iran's ballistic missile program. And on this, we're trying to ensure that they stay firm with, within the P5 plus one, and at this point, they are. So the Russians actually helping on that front? They are in the sense that they, that they are complying uh, with the, the, um, their commitment not to transfer these kinds of technologies or to facilitate the transfer. Thank you. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit to the Iranian elections and ask what your what our analysis in the State Department was of those parliamentary elections back in February and whether we think there is any room to believe that reformers may be gaining support within Iran and whether those reformers are actually doing anything that is going to moderate Iran's stance with respect to its actions in the international community? Yeah. An, an important question. Uh, the elections are still in play since there's a variety of, variety of runoff elections. Uh, and so it's hard for us to give uh, a global uh, understanding or, or estimate of, of the impact of those elections. However, if we just look at what happened in Tehran uh, and the extent to which reformers uh, kind of swept the board uh, in terms of the seats there. I think it highlights the fact that uh, President Rouhani and his intent on opening Iran to the world and addressing some of the fundamental stumbling blocks uh, has resonated in, in a positive way. Uh, it's um, not easy for us at this point to determine the impact that's going to have on how beha Iran behaves strategically, largely because um, Iran uh, is a, a mix of conflictive entities and groups um, with hardliners uh, aligning themselves both with religious leadership and uh, with the security leadership uh, to prevent uh, uh, reformists from moving too fast, too far. And part of the work of the Supreme Leader is to balance forces inside of Iran. Um, but it is our hope and our intent that as we pursue the JCPOA, uh, and as, as Iran begins to connect uh, with other, our, our colleagues in the European Union and elsewhere, uh, that the positive impact of, of that connection or connectivity uh, is going to have a, a political effect in Iran. And it's important to, to understand that Iran faces a, a huge demographic population. 60% of Iran is 30 years old or, or younger. Uh, in other words, uh, they were born um, after the revolution, and they've lived in a sanctioned society. And their um, ability to connect with the larger world, I think, is going to become a big factor inside of Iranian internal politics. And it's our hope that that, that will lead to some changes in Iran's behavior. And do we see, I know I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, but if I could just follow up with one question. Do we see any connection to that and a reduction in the human rights abuses that are occurring inside Iran? At this point, we don't see a lot. Um, and that's because there, there's a political struggle going on and a, and a definitional struggle. And in moments like that, the tendency is for human rights abuses to go up. Thank you. 
Thank you. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations on passage of your bill last night, by the way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it's great when we get things done here. And I appreciate uh, deeply uh, your making it possible for us to have this hearing today and your close cooperation with the ranking members such that we have a, a functional and relevant foreign relations committee as well. Um, Ambassador Shannon, uh, thank you uh, for your testimony here today. And um, broadly speaking, uh, I continue to be glad that Iran has taken critical steps to uh, restrain its nuclear weapons program as mandated by the JCPOA uh, to limit its ability uh, to quickly develop a nuclear weapon. And I applaud the administration for sanctioning both individuals and entities involved in cyber attacks against the United States in 2011 and 2013. And I'm pleased uh, you've worked closely with our international partners over three recent incidents uh, to interdict Iranian weapons shipments uh, bound for the Houthi rebels in Yemen and the Arabian Sea. Uh, and I urge uh, continued uh, thoroughness and vigor in the enforcement of uh, all the different uh, mechanisms we have for preventing um, the Iranians from uh, continuing to project power in the region. Uh, but I remain uh, deeply concerned that Iran uh, continues to expand its influence in the Middle East and increase support for its terrorist proxies. Uh, Iran's recent ballistic missile tests, which I know have been discussed at length at this hearing today, uh, contradict its commitments under UN Security Council Resolution 2231, and I think uh, demonstrate that the nuclear deal will not change Iran's behavior, at least uh, in the short run, uh, and remains Iran remains unready to meet the obligations required of a responsible member of the international community. And I remain disturbed. Iran continues to flagrantly violate the human rights of the Iranian people and has increased the pace of arrests and executions of political prisoners. Uh, so uh, I believe that if we fail to hold Iran accountable for these actions and fail to respond uh, to violations of the JCPOA, even minor violations, uh, that the viability of the nuclear agreement will be in jeopardy. Um, so while I commend the administration for its recent actions, I, I encourage uh, that they continue, and I encourage that you uh, enhance the implementation of the nuclear accord uh, while we continue to work together on a bipartisan basis to be vigorous in pressing back on their ballistic missile tests, their support for terrorism and, and their proxies and their human rights violations. Um, let me start, if I could, with a question about IAEA funding. Uh, a February 2016 GAO report says, that IAEA officials have expressed concerns about the reliability of the sustained extra budgetary contributions uh, for uh, JCPOA enforcement activities uh, due to possible donor fatigue over the long run. Uh, and in a visit that I made uh, to Vienna to meet with IAEA leadership earlier this year, it reinforced those concerns. Uh, do the, does the State Department agree uh, that these are significant concerns and that a failure of the IAEA to have uh, appropriate personnel uh, deployed to take advantage of the searching inspections made possible under the JCPOA uh, matters deeply. And do you believe the U.S. should make a significant, proactive, and long-term investment uh, to meet the IAEA's requirements to demonstrate we're fully committed to enforcing the JCPOA over the long term? The, the short answer is yes. Um, the, the longer answer, uh, first of all, we're, we're, uh, we're grateful for the GAO report. Uh, we have it in draft and we're commenting on it. Um, we believe that uh, the IAEA has the resources it needs in the short term um, through the end of the year to address um, uh, its uh, uh, responsibilities in terms of compliance verification. Um, but we are continuing to look for ways with our partners uh, to enhance uh, the resources, especially the funding that the IAEA has uh, at its uh, disposal. What we are asking the IAEA to do is quite remarkable. Uh, it's an important organization to begin with in terms of nonproliferation and in terms of uh, nuclear security and safety. 
but we are asking it to take on a role in Iran uh, so intrusive and so interventionist uh, that uh, it will be groundbreaking for it in many ways. Um, much of it it can do technologically, um, but much of it is also going to require inspectors on the ground. Uh, and this is going to require special funding and special training. Um, but we are working uh, with our partners to ensure that the resources are available. But we will have uh, a conversation uh, with this Congress to, dis to discuss in, in broader detail where we think additional help uh, would be important. Thank you, Ambassador. My strong impression is that the IAEA is a thorough, cautious, professional organization. Uh, and so they are simply being responsible in not uh, leaping forward to invest in a whole new generation of inspectors. Uh, but that's not what this moment calls for. Uh, one of the real positive features of the JCPOA is the opportunity for searching intrusive inspections, as you reference. Uh, and nuclear inspectors take a while to train and to deploy, and I don't think we should be penny-wise and pound-foolish in this area and fail to enthusiastically take advantage of this window uh, and provide robust support to the IAEA. Um, one other question. Uh, earlier this month, the UN issued a report uh, showing the number of people executed by the Iranian government uh, skyrocketed to nearly 1,000 in 2015, twice as many as in 2010, 10 times as many as in 2005. In your testimony, you highlight uh, Sasada, the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions Accountability and Divestment Act, as a tool uh, to potentially uh, draw attention to and uh, punish Iranian human rights violations. Do you believe the Sasada authorities uh, should be expanded in any way in light of uh, Iran's ongoing human rights abuses? Um, first of all, one of our biggest, at, at the beginning of, of, of um, my testimony, I noted of the, the three areas that concern us. One is human rights, and because of the uh, the, the situation we see right now, uh, and what it means for Iran uh, politically, and what it means for Iran going into the future. Um, uh, when it comes to sanctioning uh, Iranian people and entities for human rights abuses, again, we believe we have the authorities, and I realize this is an unsatisfactory answer for, for this, um, this committee, but we are happy to engage in a conversation with this committee and with the Senate about what more we can and should be doing to address these issues as we would be in uh, other areas of sanctions, as I noted. Well, uh, let me, I see my time's expired. Let me just make two comments, if I might, in closing. Uh, I had the chance yesterday to meet uh, with Vitaly Cherkin, who's Russia's ambassador to the United Nations, and uh, he made it clear Russia will block UN Security Council uh, action in response to Iran's uh, recent multiple ballistic missile tests. Uh, and I think it's incumbent on us to work closely together and the legislative branch to ensure that uh, we take a greater action uh, to strengthen our unilateral sanctions against Iran's ballistic missile program. Uh, and I'm very concerned about uh, the ongoing debate in this committee and across other committees about uh, the possibility of uh, wider access to the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar facilities uh, for Iran. Uh, I am determined that we uh, make sure that Iran and its efforts to expand its reach in the Middle East and to support terrorism and to finance terrorism is contained appropriately. Um, thank you for your testimony, Mr. Undersecretary. Thank you. And uh, Senator Cardin. I just want to make a comment and, about U.S. leadership. Obviously, it would be preferred to have the Security Council take action against Iran for its missile violations. That would be preferred. Uh, it would also be preferred that in addition to the U.S. actions, we have our coalition partners, including beyond the, the JCPOA, the Gulf countries uh, participate with us, would be very helpful 
and sanctions against Iran for missile violations. But it really starts with U.S. leadership. We've seen it over and over again that if the United States is not prepared to take a very strong stance, it's difficult to get the type of attention internationally. Uh, we did that recently in North Korea with the passage of the North Korea Sanctions Act. Uh, it was a strong bill, strong message, working with the administration. We got that done. So I, I just make a couple comments. You've mentioned a couple times human rights violations and that uh, under these current circumstances, we see an uptick on what Iran's doing on human rights violations. We should have a strategy to respond to that. And we'll be stronger if Congress gives you the way to do, deal with that, working with Congress to show that we are serious about holding Iran's nefarious actions accountable. And on ballistic missiles, it seems to me this is a relatively easy matter, working with the administration to have a statutory framework that goes beyond any one administration to make it clear we are going to take action against Iran. If, if we're the only country, we'll do it. But when we act, we generally can get our partners in Europe pay more attention to us and our strategic partners around the world to pay more attention to it, perhaps even adding to UN sanctions ultimately. So I would just urge you in the strongest possible way to not only show a willingness to work with Congress, but to help us come to the appropriate legislative response to the realities of Iran today. And today we see that they are violating their, their, their missiles obligations, they're violating international human rights, as you pointed out, and they're supporting terrorism. Uh, beyond the JCPOA nuclear uh, responsibilities, which I said earlier, we, we, we will treat that as a separate basket. But let's not be uh, bashful about uh, US, the need for US leadership. And it, the Congress is a critical role in that. And you can help us. There's different, there's a common agenda in the administration, but there's a different attitude in State Department, Defense, Energy, Treasury, the White House. And I think you can play a very important role bringing us together with a strong uh, statement by the United States Congress getting us to pass legislation that can help you in this effort. Thank you. Senator Menendez, I know I wanted to come back and ask some questions. And Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity. Mr. Secretary, just a couple of quick questions. Maybe you can answer them yes or no. When you hear the question, you'll probably understand that it's, it's acceptable for a yes or no. I know sometimes that's hard, particularly for the, the members of the State Department to do. Uh, yes or no, is sanctions against ballistic missile uh, testing uh, a violation of the JCPOA? No. Is sanctions against financial institutions that are financing, whether it be ballistic missile tests or the financing of terrorism activities uh, in violation of the JCPOA? No. Is uh, reauthorization of the Iran Sanctions Act a violation of the JCPOA? Not that I'm aware of. A little more equivocative. I, I don't think it is, but yeah. uh, uh, I don't think it is. now. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that I've had the GAO investigating some of the assumptions of the administration about the JCPOA and the international community's ability to ensure that Iran uh, is, and as the President has said, following the letter of the agreement but also the spirit. The GAO's observations pointed directly to future problems at the IAEA with monitoring, verifying, and meeting the requirements of the JCPOA and included but not limited to 
limited investigative capabilities, limited analytical capabilities, a limited budget from irregular funding sources, human resource shortfalls, certain important equipment operating at capacity already, a lack of authorities and a dependence on Iran's cooperation, and the tyranny of dichotomy as the IAEA turns its attention almost exclusively to Iran, it turns away from other proliferators that we are concerned about as well. These are pretty profound challenges. Now the GAO has found some additional problems, which I'm raising with you for the first time, and I hope to hear uh, your responses to it. Uh, Iran has a history of safeguard violations and of denying the IAEA access to its facilities. How does the IAEA communicate potential violations of the agreement to the Joint Commission or individual parties to the agreement, and has the IAEA flagged any activity as a violation or potential violation so far? Well, thank, thank you for that question. Um, the IAEA is a central part of compliance with the JCPOA, uh, and as you noted, uh, the demands of the JCPOA, and as Senator Coons noted, um, are going to uh, place a, a, a very special responsibility uh, on the IAEA, uh, but also very special demands uh, that will require the IAEA to transform aspects of its structure and its behavior, and we're prepared uh, to work with the IAEA to ensure that it does so in a timely fashion. Um, the IAEA um, communicates uh, with the Joint Commission and the members of the Joint Commission in a variety of forms. Um, it has uh, regular reporting requirements uh, related to uh, uh, JCPOA compliance. Um, it also uh, engages with us uh, individually uh, in Vienna uh, on um, uh, JCPOA compliance, uh, and uh, it is in a, in a, in a position uh, to identify uh, aspects of uh, JCPOA compliance uh, that, that need further attention. And we have had... Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but sure. my specific question is how does it communicate potential violations of the agreement to the Joint Commission, and have they flagged any activity as a violation or potential violation so far? They have not flagged violations. Um, they have flagged issues in which there is uh, not a complete understanding between both parties about what needs to be done. And because of that, uh, we working with uh, within the Joint Commission and working with our uh, our, our partners and the Iranians have been able to address them. Mm -hmm. So they communicate to the Joint Commission in writing, verbally, uh, to individuals. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get the process here because that's one of the things the, the GAO talks about. What is the process to do this? Uh, well, as I noted, there, there's, it's a, a kind of a two-tiered process. The first is through its formal reports. Um, but secondly, uh, the Joint Commission members uh, engage regularly with the IAEA. That's the reason we do the meetings in Vienna uh, and, and, and meet with IAEA. Let officials. me ask you this. You, you said that there were interpretation, if, correct me if I'm wrong, interpretation questions. Uh, so have there been instances of questionable compliance thus far that were resolved outside of the dispute resolution mechanism? Um, the, these were issues that, that didn't uh, kind of raise to the issue of a dispute. These, these were issues in, in which um, uh, we noticed uh, uh, certain activities that, that we thought were not in compliance. We engaged with the Iranians, and they were fixed. So there is 
so those wouldn't, uh, because if there was a, a dispute on something, it would be more formal and everyone would know about it. The way in which you describe those issues, it's rather informal and uh, no one knows exactly what they are, right? There's no record of that. I'll, I'll have to go back and check on, 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 on a couple of the specific ones, uh, whether or not uh, they were formalized or, or written in okay. some fashion. Let me ask you this. Uh, if an access issue arose to the Joint Commission, would the IAEA still get access within 24 days if any members of the Joint Commission disagreed on its significance? I'm, I'm sorry, would they get... Um, if an access question, meaning access by the IAEA right, right. to Iran's to the Joint Commission, would IAEA still get access yeah. Yeah. within 24 days if any members of the Joint Commission disagreed on its significance. Some might say it's not a significant worthy of having access. Would the Joint Commission, would the IAEA still get access? My understanding is yes. My understanding is okay. the IAEA can access areas that it... Even if, even if members of the Joint Commission are in disagreement? Yes. Yes. Okay. And finally, uh, how will the IAEA and or the procurement working group know that exporters are going through the procurement channel? Are there consequences, penalties for exporters failing to go through the procurement channel? If, if the material is uh, that, that it, they are seeking to sell is, is being, uh, um, uh, is, is on excluded lists, um, the answer is yes. But my, my understanding is that anybody that wants to engage, uh, in, uh, engage with Iran on, on issues that are controlled has to go through the procurement working group. I, I, these, I raise these questions because this is a new onset of the GAO study, and I would invite you as you go back to the State Department to review your answers to me, and if any of them need to be modified, because I'm really just interested in the facts. Uh, if they need to be modified for the record, I'm sure the chairman would consider it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, I would actually ask you to maybe reconsider your answer. Um, there is a joint commission vote that has to occur and the IAEA can be denied access. So I, I just, I know you're somewhat new to this. I know you weren't involved in the negotiation. I don't think you answered that question appropriately and, and not intentionally, but my sense is you're gonna to need to correct that. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, and, and it's, none of those are gotcha questions. Yeah. It's new questions raised by the GAO study that I and Senator Kirk asked to be commissioned. And I just want to get a, a, a definitive answer so that we understand. I understand it as the chairman does, yeah. but we need to know what the State Department's view is on it. So as we are looking at legislation, whatever, that we can think about that. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I will take that and get back to you. And I think that was one of the concerns was the, Got it. the period leading up to the 24 days, then the 24 days, and then the vote of the commission. And I, I do think you might want to restate your answer. Okay. Um, I think we're closing out. I, I, I just would like to say, I, I know Senator Shaheen asked some questions about the election, and which I appreciated. And, um, uh, you know, the fact is, I think people are still observing, while some, quote, more moderate folks were elected, whether Iran is putting on a moderate image but carrying out the same policies or whether the policies at some point are actually going to change. I mean, the number of people who are being executed, the human rights violations, uh, the things they're doing in the region to destabilize seem to have been on the ascendancy since, quote, uh, these elections have taken place. Secondarily, I would just say that, uh, look, there are people on this 
bias and on this committee that voted in different ways relative to the to the, to the agreement, and that is understandable. Um, I don't think a single person today said that they wanted to lighten up in pursuit of Iran adhering to this agreement. I don't think there's a push I may have misunderstood, but I don't think that's the case. No one's advocating putting in place policies that violate it, but we want to make sure that it's adhered to. I just would say that it would, it, I get the sense that Secretary Kerry and has gotten to know Foreign Minister Zarif well. They developed a relationship, uh, maybe so with Rouhani, and I just get the sense that there's a desire by the Secretary to accommodate, to bend, to make this work more than the agreement states it should for Iran. My sense is there are other parts of the administration that are countering that. I think the President's someplace in between, but I just want to say I don't think you heard today from this committee, and I'm glad we had this hearing, any desire to provide flexibility that doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, what I think you heard today was making sure that we push back in the appropriate ways because there's a sense that over time the will to adhere to this could erode. And uh, I hope you'll take that back to the State Department. We thank you for your testimony. There will be uh, questions asked in writing. If you would, uh, the record will remain open until the close of business Thursday. If you would respond appropriately, we'd appreciate it. Um, I know this is a hearing on some technical issues today, some of which you're familiar with, some of which you're not. We thank you for coming, and we appreciate the role you're playing at the State Department. No, thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. With that, the meeting's adjourned.